Hey everyone, this is Chris Lim with the Theotech Podcast, and I'm really excited to be with my friend Matt Williams, who is the host of How to Build a Tent. We're here in his home in Hawaii, actually, after enjoying a beautiful day in the sun. How are you doing today, Matt? Aloha, I'm doing great. So, tell us more, Matt, the story behind How to Build a Tent. Where did you get the idea? What's your goal with it? Going back all the way to the beginning, it started, I was consulting for one of my friends who has their own podcast, Cross Politic, and I've been helping them transition from one show to a network. And my show was the first in that transition of adding one more show to the network. And mm. I just am passionate about business. I love helping people be successful in business, not for success in and of itself, but to glorify God and be able to further the kingdom. And it just was a great fit for the network vision and what they had and what I was helping them with. And we came together and I've been doing it now for 130 episodes. That's amazing. Yeah. And what do you see being the reason why switching from a single podcast to a network makes a lot of sense? And Well, it's just a great time to be in podcasting because of how fast it's growing. There's so many people that want to get into it and technology has made it available for us to do very cheaply I and mean, you mm -hmm. really if you want to just start out you can start out on your iphone or your android phone if you're one of those people <laughs> <laughs> i'm one of those people yeah <laughs> uh, no i'm just kidding uh but it's so cheap and so really it just comes down to how good is your content and mm -hmm. the, the competition of your ideas and it's just a great time and just the vision that we've had on our network the fight laugh feast network is that we want to proclaim the gospel in every area of life, that we should be doing ministry, we should be preaching the gospel in every part of our lives, not just on at church on Sundays, mm -hmm. but at work, in our hobbies, in our sports. And that is the purpose of all these different shows, is we want to be talking about those things and how to be Christians and how to be actively pursuing the calling God has for us in all of those areas. That's excellent. So that, that network lets you apply it to sports, lets you apply it to business, lets you apply it to the arts or all these other parts of life. Yeah, because God's gifted us okay. in all those areas. God has given us giftings and abilities in different areas where not ministry isn't just supposed to take place on the pulpit, mm -hmm. but it's supposed to be in our work. It should be on our softball teams on Friday nights in the pubs drinking beer if you're reformed. Yes. <laughs> if you're not, then it's not drinking beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were talking earlier um, about how my sense is that God is behind technology. And that even though we might be afraid of how everything's changing so fast and really starting to control our lives or whatever, God is behind technology to bring about his purpose to unite heaven and earth in Jesus Christ through the church. And that it makes us makes me really joyful as a technologist because what it means is that I get to lean into what does God actually want with all of this stuff that's happening and how do we live into that and pursue that faithfully. You're now sharing about what it means for all these other parts of life. It just feels like we are on the cusp maybe of a second reformation. In the first one, there was a monopoly on the word. You could only have access through the priesthood, and you had to be highly educated and had to have be wealthy to be able to have even a Bible. And because of the technological shift of Gutenberg, <laughs> all of a sudden Bibles could be printed in many languages, and that technological shift was basically catalyzed by Luther, yeah. who translated the scriptures into the vernacular so everybody can have access now in their own language. It feels like we're kind of in a similar pre-Second Reformation phase where the Internet over the past three decades... And now AI is up and coming. It's really disrupting everything, but it's also removing those gatekeepers where in the past there was somebody who would say like, this is what ministry is. Like you can become a pastor or you can become a missionary or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. But that monopoly on the ministry is kind of getting broken up. And now anyone like you can start a podcast about faith and business and how to live your faith in the business world, even if you're not 
from the seminary and you're not just like becoming a full-time vocational pastor. There's mm-hmm. so many other opportunities for Christians to use their gifts, their most valuable ones in, their, in the marketplace for the kingdom. So that's my little soapbox, but I'm so excited that now I know what your network is trying to do. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. So having said that, how is it that your podcast, How to Build a Tent, how do you see it helping unleash like Christian business owners? Yeah, well, hopefully it makes them an authority in whatever industry they're in and they're able to take concepts and ideas and principles that we discuss on the show and apply them into their work where they are able to be successful, not in the Joel Olstein kind of, you know, God wants to make you rich and mm-hmm. have a happy life, but that you can use that to be an authority in your business and be somebody that people want to look up to and that are open to your example, your city on the hill, the light that you are sharing. And then you can speak into people's lives. And not only that, but you can build businesses which all it is is providing value to people if you boil it down, right? Yeah. That's what you do to be profitable in business. You provide value to people. You're blessing people. You're improving their lives. Having Christians that are successful in all these different industries allows us to preach the gospel in those industries. So how do you see... I'm going to ask you some questions that... Because you mentioned about like the Joel Osteen version. God just wants to bless you. All you have to do is believe or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. But you are talking about success as well. Business success, marketplace success. How do you draw that distinction of what success looks like when it's a fruit of the gospel versus one that might simply be that I want to be rich and I'm going to use the gospel as a way to get rich? Yeah, I think that is a great question. I view money and success and your physical assets in this world as a tool. But the distinction that I make for people is I want you to be successful for spiritual purposes, not for this physical world. I don't want you to be successful so that you can have four homes, even though having multiple homes isn't a bad thing. I'm not saying it is. (laughs) But if your goal is to have four homes so that you can feel secure in life and not find your security in Christ, that's where it becomes the quote-unquote Joel Olstein. And I'm just, I'm probably unfairly like just using using him as as the punching bag, right? But because I think those kinds of teachings have ruined the idea of success for Christians and they kind of have this false humility where it's like, oh, it's bad to have money. It's bad to be successful. It's bad to have nice things. When it isn't, it can actually be a really helpful tool to evangelize, to build relationships, to use for ministry, and to do great things for the gospel. We see a lot of rich, successful people in the Bible that God used. Yeah. I don't know why it would be any different today. And also, if you're doing what God has called you to do, and you're doing it well, then the profits should be almost like the sign that you're doing well, the KPI that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing. Because if you're not having a successful business, if you're not providing value to people, then you're not going to have profit. Like we don't live in an economy where you're forcing people to buy your product. Mm -hmm. And so I think if anything, money is a scoreboard to let you know that you're doing something well. And definitely as Christians, we should be doing whatever we're doing well for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I actually yeah. made an argument that we should be making as much profit as we can in one of my episodes mm-hmm. and kind of just taking it from an economic standpoint that either you are going to be able to charge so much and make a large profit and be able to use that to reinvest and have more jobs. Yep. And on the other side, you are going to encourage other people to come in because they see your profits 
and compete with you. Mm -hmm. And so in the long run, it's good for the economy as well that you are charging and making a lot of profit. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I got a lot of pushback on that, but I really believe that. Like you should be making as much money as you can because one, like if you have something that's providing value and you're able to do that, it's a free economy, yeah. then you should be rewarded for that because then you can do more great things with it and mm-hmm. make the, your society richer and help your community around you. But also it encourages other people to get in as well. Yeah, the competition angle is interesting to me because I remember when I worked for Amazon that uh, one of the leadership principles was customer obsession. Mm-hmm. Leaders pay attention to the competition, but they obsess over customers and they work backwards from that. And the philosophy was, you know what, if we... If we're doing so good for customers and it's profitable or it's successful, that competition factor is going to make other people customer obsessed too. So it changes the industry because we're competing to be the most customer obsessed. At the end of the day, the customer is winning. And I love that because I felt like, you know, in the same way in the, in the Christian world and at least what we do at Theotech, we want to make God the customer. We want to obsess over what God wants and, you know, work backwards from that. And what we're hoping is that if we succeed financially as well, other people are like, wait, you can build a business where God is like the the customer in the sense of you obsess over what God really desires out of this, it could drive many more people in the business world and industries to adopt that mindset, which at the end is a net win. Like mm-hmm. in my sense, like, well, that's exactly the kingdom of God. Everybody yeah. is obsessing over what God wants and delivering more of that value. Mm-hmm. That's how we want to compete. And it also means that there's a flip side too, which is that we can see competition. We can feel like, ah, oh, like, you know, we could do that. We could do this, but we don't really want to because it's not because it wouldn't work, but it's just not aligned with this idea of like, God's actually the customer. And so we have to make those sacrifices, choices by faith and like, we're going to still stick to our guns and see like, what's the fruit when God is the customer instead of just, oh, here's a great market. Let's go after it and, you know, maximize our profit and serving <laughs> yeah. it. I, I love that. And I should say also, since we're saying like our goal should be for success, for profitability. But one of the great things about being a Christian is that we have a safety net in God providing for us. Mm-hmm. And this kind of goes back to our technology discussion too, that we shouldn't be fearful of technology. If I wasn't a Christian and I was an atheist, I would be as freaked out as Elon Musk is. Yep. If you know his story about how freaked out he gets about AI and how they're going to take over the world. Yep. But because we have a great God who is active in our lives, looking out for us, that we can, one, not be fearful of the future and look for the positives he has for us in technology, but also in business and entrepreneurship, we can take leaps of faith that are quote unquote risky, obeying God, because even if we fail, even though we're striving for success, we might fail, but God still uses those failures to make us successful in the future. And what I mean successful in that way is to make us more like him and to fulfill his path. And oftentimes he uses failures as guideposts to get us where he wants us. And so they're not really failures at all. Mm -hmm. And so as Christians, we should be the most entrepreneurial people People there are Absolutely. because God is with us. Yeah, that there's no there's no risk. No, in the sense that God's going to take care of it to produce His will through us. As I look back over the five years that we've done Theotech, mm-hmm. God has provided for us, but it wasn't always the way we expected. Which is t- the typical, typical. Route. the typical <laughs> route was like, oh, okay, you're going to do a prototype, an MVP, go to VCs or angel investors, raise money, and then okay, that's how you're provided for, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're going to have a hit viral product that's going to like change the world, and you're going to get tons of revenue. That, neither of those things are what happened to us. We did get some revenue, but the real way God provided for me was actually Elijah's oil, quote unquote, which mm-hmm. was Amazon stock. So I had stock when I left mm-hmm. and I would sell some to provide for my living. And then a year later, the value of those stocks would be greater than it was the previous year because the stock price kept going up. Mm-hmm. And I would sell some and a year later, the stock price would be greater than it was. The total value was greater than it was yeah. the previous year. It's strange. Uh-huh. 
I couldn't predict it. Mm-hmm. It was I didn't know God was going to provide that way. Mm-hmm. But I share it not because everybody's going to have that in their life, but right. it's a testimony to like somehow God did provide in ways that I didn't expect. And in in this analogy to Elijah's oil, where just the oil doesn't run out mm-hmm. until the famine's over, and you know yeah. whatever the next stage of life is. Mm-hmm. And so for any entrepreneurs out there who are scared, wondering like, hey, how the heck did God provide for me? It doesn't make any sense. This market doesn't make any sense. I, I just want to affirm, like, if it is God's call for you and you're living faithfully, there's ways that God provides that are beyond what we would expect. And that frees us up, like you said. Like, okay, it's for the kingdom. This is what God desires. Let's pursue it and not mm-hmm. worry about, you know, whether or not we're going to be able to eat because that's exactly what the scripture says. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Seek first the kingdom. All these things will be added to you. Yeah, you think about billionaires that are not Christians. They make decisions because they have this big nest egg and they're able to establish affluence and they have confidence to go out and invest themselves into things because they have this backup plan. And really, theologically, we have a bigger nest egg than him. Mm -hmm. We have unlimited resources. We have the creator behind us. And we should be even more confident than the billionaires are because our nest egg is bigger. It's God. And we should be just charging ahead with whatever we think God has called us for. We shouldn't be living in fear. Mm-hmm. Like if we are obedient and believing God has called us to something, like we shouldn't be second guessing it. We should be going for it because God is powerful enough. He is loving enough to guide us to where he wants us. He's not going to be like, oh, you really thought I meant that, but you were wrong. And then just leave us hanging. Yeah. But he's always there with us. And mm-hmm. that's it's such a tool for us, such a uh, idea that hold on to when we go through times. Because, man, if you are an entrepreneur and you're not scared, you're nuts. Because yeah. there are plenty of things to be fearful of, but we always have that resource to go back to. Yeah, and it, it's beautiful because it applies to everybody, regardless of how rich or poor that they are. Absolutely, like, that's what it means for God to be our Father. We're all rich in the kingdom, right? Yeah. You know, one of the struggles I had early on when I was building our product was this tension between, I guess, vaporware, like pre-sale if you know what I'm talking about, versus like having something of substance first that you could already deliver value on. Because mm-hmm. the, the prevailing wisdom at that time was, oh, you should just have a landing page, drive traffic to it, test the value proposition, see if everybody wants to buy it, and then you should build it, right? Versus, versus my personality, and I don't know if it's because I'm Asian or Christian or other things like that. I was <laughs> or like, combined. Yeah, just like, oh, I would rather not sell anything until like I have something of substance where I feel like, yeah, this is good, mm-hmm. and I want to sell it to you. And I feel good charging charging you money for it because I know that even if you didn't want to buy it, like it's not because it's bad. It's it's totally worth it. Right. Yeah. And for us it took three years for our product to develop to that point where now we have that sense of humble confidence. This is valuable. Like compared to what else is on the market, how it delivers value to you, it's worth it to spend the money that we're asking for. But I remember in the early days, man, I felt like a terrible entrepreneur because I felt bad charging money. Uh-huh. You know, and I didn't want to be like, you know, the Pharisees, they loved money. And they were very religious and, you know, everything like that. And, and I just had this, like, aversion to, uh, is, you know, is what I do actually valuable? And I would have friends who would affirm me. Chris, it's, it's okay. Like, what you're doing is valuable. You should charge for it. Yeah. But it was hard psychologically to overcome that, to feel like, this is good. We're not cheating people. We're not begging for money. What we're delivering is valuable. And so it's fair for us to be paid for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have felt that, but how do you help <laughs> entrepreneurs get over that hump? Because I feel like it's a real big challenge in the early days, especially. Yeah, definitely. I just before I get to that question, yeah, I you made me think of this one guy I was talking with. I was actually pitching him my idea in the beginning before I had the product. And there was this app. It was actually really cool for just 
coming up with ideas. You would take a picture of your drawing and be able to create hot links within those pictures to go. And he was like, just roll out with that as your MVP. Uh-huh. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like literally my finger drawings <laughs> on my uh, phone. Like you want me to make that the product? Yeah. And I was so like, no, I can't do that. So I'm thinking I'm right there with you in the boat. But as far as charging people, I think we need to get over this idea that when you give something for free, it's always for the betterment of the person. Mm-hmm. It is. It doesn't always help people to give them free things all the time. Yeah. And again, you need to be rewarded for your work mm-hmm. and you need to be able to make a profit, not just for yourself, but because we live in an economy where we, if we see someone who's making money, that will be encouraging to me to take risk. And that's kind of the thing that capitalism has got kind of a bad reputation for, and mm. I don't know why, is that people have to pay for things, but that is one of the best ways to ration resources, and it also allows us as a community to be wealthy. If you notice, a lot of the things that we've had for 50 to 60 years has become cheaper. And it's because people charged people for their initial products, even though it was more expensive. Mm -hmm. But then competition came in and made it better and made it cheaper. And so there's this trend that you can see with most products that things get cheaper over time because Mm. of that relationship. And so don't be scared to know the value of what you are. Uh, Facebook and Google taught us that free was good. And that the internet should just be free in the sense of like no no charge. Mm-hmm. But now, several, maybe 10 years later, we're experiencing the downsides of it. But now we're seeing like, oh, maybe Facebook being free isn't so good mm-hmm. because they're monetizing my attention. And now so many of us are addicted to social media, which isn't good for human flourishing. It's good for their profits, but it's actually taking advantage of people in a way that they shouldn't be. Yeah, they're manipulating um, your mind and getting those dopamine triggers yeah. to get you addicted to notifications. Exactly. And so we're seeing kind of the side effect of how like the internet colored it for the you know, first, first decade or two decades. We're like, oh, it's all free. This is amazing. We love it. And then now we see the outcome of the consequence of that where it maybe wasn't a just exchange. It was a manipulative one that was VC backed mm-hmm. so that they could win market share. And now having done so, they have the power to control our minds implicitly, not directly, but implicitly through the algorithms that are running it. And I'm not going to try and say that they're a nefarious corporation that has that evil intent. It's just that now they have accumulated that power. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy for it to be also misused. Well, that's the importance of having the kingdom mindset and to have God at your center is because you won't go down those roads. Their focus is to reward shareholder value, right? Get the return on investment for their shareholders, especially publicly traded companies do this. And that doesn't really have a lot of restraints. You're going to do whatever you can within legal bounds to get that profit. But when the kingdom is your focus, you want profits, you want to be successful, but then you have that restraint of those kingdom values to guide you. Yeah. You need morality in a free society or it's not going to work. You're going to have these issues. And just last thing is that economic tenstoffel, you know, acronym is so true. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Even mm-hmm. when it seems free, it's not. And it might even be in the sense of your dignity. If you get like free subsidies or handouts, there's something being taken from you from that. There's some respect. There's honor in hard work and earning things mm-hmm. and not just be getting it for free. And I have noticed there's a there's a difference between free as in like 
oh, it's tons of free beer versus like the gift. A gift is free, but it's so precious. It's meaningful. It's a connection. Mm -hmm. But free is almost like a marketing tool to get you into their ecosystem. Yeah. And it's very different. But there's know? still a cost. There is. Exactly. So the gift is a cost by the gift giver. Mm -hmm. But the free from the marketing tool is the cost of the person receiving it as well. You just, it's hidden yeah, it's costs, a right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're paying, we pay for Facebook. We pay with our information. Our, and our attention, too. And our attention, yeah, our time, ads, yeah. which is very valuable. Mm -hmm. It's Some would say it's more valuable than money, right? Yeah. It's interesting because um, you said that these corporations, publicly traded ones, have a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value. And that's exactly the pushback against quote-unquote capitalism. There is a movement for socially conscious capitalism and that kind of thing where they're trying to add other human values to what they can pursue. Are you familiar with this realm? No, this is the first time hearing about it, but I just am laughing because I, as an investor in Facebook, wouldn't invest in Facebook if I knew that I would have no recourse for dealing with a poorly run management company, then I would never invest in it. And like when you think of someone like Warren Buffett, he made his fortune off of betting on management companies that are going to be responsible and run their companies well. They're not running their companies well. They're running their companies in whatever idealistic way that they have. This is something that I don't think people understand when you talk about maximizing shareholder value, mm. is the shareholder value isn't like 10 guys in a room smoking cigars and drinking scotch and taking over the world. It's 401ks of working Pensions, people. Yeah. It's individual retail investors. It's a whole group of people. And when you are attacking a company that's publicly traded, you're attacking all of the owners. And like the Amazon issue in New York, that was hurting tons of people that were invested in the company, not just the New York people alone, like missing out on the jobs, but the New York uh, stockholders. It's not just Jeff Bezos's company, mm -hmm. but there are hundreds of thousands of people that own stock in Amazon as well. Normal people, not like all millionaires, but average people looking to invest their money in solid companies that are going to provide return on the investment so they can retire in the future. And all of these attacks are attacking all those people as well. They're not just attacking Bezos. They're attacking everyone who owns stock in the company. And so what does that mean then? Because they don't have shareholder voice, they don't own the shares, right? They don't have influence in the direction of the company. And so that's the way that they have to be able to influence it is through politics, basically. This is my understanding. Okay. And I'm not going to say that I'm left or right on this issue because I was I formerly worked at Amazon. I obviously want to see them do well. Uh -huh. But I also understand the concerns because I grew up in Seattle and I know how it's changed because of Amazon's mm -hmm. growth, like rapid growth, right? Yeah. I think overall it's to the benefit of our city. But with any kind of growth, there's also costs involved. And the costs are not always equally borne by the people who are benefiting from it. So I get that. What I see with New York is that there could be a couple angles here. One is that it's a political cause because it's basically the underdog against the bully. Like this big company is going to come and ruin our neighborhood and change our way of life. And, you know, from a political standpoint, you can posture that way. I don't really like that. But there is another kind of risk, which is the people who are representing their people, their constituents and saying, yeah, what, what's going to happen to our neighborhoods and our people where if Amazon's going to move into here, how is it going to impact our lives? And for those kinds of politicians, I still have, you know, respect that they should have their voice heard. They're, they're doing their job if they're trying to represent the interests of their constituents. And that's their recourse because they don't have the capital to buy Jeff Bezos's billions of shares and try to redirect the company a different way. To me, like when I look at that situation, I'm overall sad because I think that they miss out on a lot of the benefits. But I also understand some of the other interests that like, what could what could a company do to build that rapport? And maybe you can't. If it truly is just a political like angle on it, maybe you can't do anything to solve it. But if there are genuine concerns of the community, how do you actually build that relationship so that they don't feel like you're exploiting them or oppressing them? They feel like, we want 
you here because you bring so much blessing to our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it makes me sad on two fronts. One, from just a large comparison, we have a great example of the one extreme of socialism and the damage it causes in Venezuela, where governments are telling people, companies, what to do, what to produce, what price to produce. And we're seeing what's happening there. Centrally planned economy. Yeah. Centrally planned economy. It's a disaster. And then we have the other extreme, like in your neck of the woods in Washington, where the issue is things are too expensive. Why are things expensive? Because there is a high demand for a limited supply of products. You can go to the middle of Utah and find cheap housing because the demand isn't there. It's in that place where Amazon is. Yep. And this is a thing I think it goes back to a worldview as well of Christians versus non-Christians is the people that don't have a hope in the future kingdom are trying to bring heaven and make perfection here. But the truth is, no matter what economic system you have, there is going to be damage. There is going to be destruction. It's what is it going to look like? Is it going to look like Venezuela or is it going to look like Seattle? I would much rather live in Washington than Venezuela right now. Certainly. And Venezuela was a rich country. They had the richest country. I think they had the most resources in South America. The second point I want to say is in the case of New York, if Amazon came in, all those people that owned homes in New York, they wouldn't hurt. They were, their wealth would triple, quadruple. So who are they saving and helping by saying to a company, don't bring your jobs here? So I think the conventional view, this is my naive understanding of it. And I think even the Christian faith has a lot of space for this. And we just have to understand how does it fit together. I don't agree with class warfare. But that's one aspect of it, it's right? Marxism. It's like, okay, this is the poor against the rich. And so this is the poor having to come together to fight the bully who's the rich and regain our power. And, you know, our, our labor is so valuable and they're exploiting it, all those other things. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that. But the advocacy for people who are poor, for people who are in circumstances where they don't have resources and everything, that's a very Christian thing. You will always have the poor with you, yes. And uh, it is through, basically, they're a member of the body. They're a member of the kingdom. And they're not to be despised because their inheritance in the kingdom is great. And uh, and in fact, that's why the gospel is such good news is that you may be too poor to buy an Amazon stock, but Christ gives you for free his inheritance in his kingdom by his blood. So if you're a, if you're a poor person, mm -hmm. this is amazing good news that Christ is for you and he's going to give you his kingdom. Mm -hmm. And if you're rich, that's why the scriptures say it's like, don't put your trust in riches, guys. It's going to disappear. Use it to be generous mm -hmm. like crazy mm -hmm. because your inheritance is in the kingdom. And mm -hmm. that is so good. Yeah. And it's so that's my. Th yeah. Th I, and I love I totally agree with that. And I love my network. Shout out again to them. Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And yeah. the guys over there because they do a, such a great job of developing the responsibility of this. And they break it down into spheres of sovereignty. Definitely, as a society, we should be taking care of and helping poor people. But whose role is that? I think biblically, the argument for Christians is your family. You're responsible first to take care of your own family. It says in the New Testament, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And then if your family can't take care of you, then it should be the church. Like the government should be the last place to help the poor. I'm not saying it's the government's fault. In fact, I think on a lot of ways, the church is to blame for not stepping up and taking the responsibility. And also family members, men, have been not been taking the responsibility to provide for their own household. And so the government's been more than willing to step in. And so I think there's a lot of room for repentance from individuals and the church as a corporate mm. entity so that we can reclaim that. 
Well, Jesus said that you will also have the poor with you, and yeah. kind of from the, from the law, you had the principle of gleanings, which is that those who did own land were not to were not to fully exhaust all the resources of the land. Mm-hmm. They were always to leave behind resources that others could also labor to to take of freely to provide for themselves. Yeah, it's like how you loved your neighbor in the Old Testament. Yeah, like and so law. and so even economically speaking, it's sort of like you know the. Um, you're not supposed to extract the full consumer surplus out of your economic transactions, basically. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to leave room. You should still profit, but you should leave room for other people to also gain benefit. I'm drawing an analogy there. I don't know if it's valid. <laughs> but it's like, in our exchange, I'm always going to try to create space for other people to benefit from this. It's not all me yeah. trying to extract all the value out of it. Yep. Um, and that's already a principle that can create justice and provide for people who don't have resources. But there's another angle on it, too, which is... Um, a lot of what you describe, I don't actually completely disagree with, but I feel like contextually, I come from a different context, and like some of it doesn't make sense. For example, okay. my family's from Indonesia. Uh-huh. Indonesia is a majority Muslim country, even though it has religious freedom. So I can see how some of the ideas that you're talking about, the churches are going to provide and everything, that kind of makes sense in a Christian America context. But even as America transitions to a post-Christian society, a lot of those categories don't necessarily make sense as much anymore. And in Indonesia, if I would tell you, like, all the churches should be providing for people who are poor, it's a majority Muslim country where the Christians are maybe like 10%. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite make sense either. And so then what I see that being the great advantage is that Christians are participating in the political process, you know, freely and fairly, mm-hmm. and they're advocating for what's righteous, for what's just, mm-hmm. and for concern for the poor and for just, justice and business and taxation and all those things like that. And it's through that mechanism that Christians act as salt and light that really raise the bar for their whole society. And I think in America, we had the benefit of Christians having that influence early on. And now we kind of, you know, the government is not a Christian government. It's just mm-hmm. um, a secular government. Absolutely. So we, it, has, it has some of those responsibilities that Christians have built into it, perhaps through the course of our history. And now maybe we dislike the way that it's being used or something. But in a lot of ways, we have enjoyed the benefits of what the church has done in the past in America to provide for people who are in poverty. And it's, it's come through the government mechanism, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I don't know what it should look like in the future, but as we kind of move to a place where Christians are no longer in the center of power, right, a post-Christian society, it could be that, that that's exactly what we're called to do now. How do we advocate with our spheres of influence, with our limitations, to benefit all of you know the common good of our people that we live among and raise that bar? Maybe it's through government. Maybe it's not. You know, it, maybe it is also churches that are not taking responsibility as kind of being self-centered. But it could be a whole swath of things that could be really beautiful because that's how it's visible. That, wow, God's love and the kingdom of God is something that is, it's not Christians serving only Christians. Like, their presence here with us, it changes our society for the better. Like, we want more Christian business owners to succeed because when they succeed, we don't experience the exploitation that happens when others succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of difference yeah. should be felt mm-hmm. um, in our society. That's our witness, I think. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And I agree, we are trending away from a Christian society. The sad thing about that is those things that we have inherited from the Christian worldview that we're still feeling today is going to fade more and more. And those freedoms, those benefits are going to be seen less and less. And I think part of our role as Christians is to call our nation to repentance, not to be some kind of like Sharia law in effect way where we are making people be Christians. That's yeah. never what America was. And that's not what we should be, but we should be advocating for Christian principles in government and the standard of what God has laid out for us in that, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that allows the freedom to practice your religions however you want, but it also allows us the freedom of not being controlled by the government, not having our money stolen and being given to somebody else, but allowing me to have the freedom to bless and to help somebody Mm -hmm. with charity in my own way. And when I say capitalism, maybe definitions are being blurred. I simply mean you have the right 
to own private property and, and, and allocate it and to allocate it how you see fit. That is capitalism. I think most people would agree that's a good thing. Socialism is a centrally run, state-run system, either of individual businesses, your utilities. Uh, just Venezuela is a great example of it. They had their companies that were running their oil fields, making a profit, and the government decided one day to take them over and no, they were no longer run by private companies, but mm -hmm. they were now run by the government. And that was a socialist act. So really what you're talking about is what F.A. Hayek talked about. I don't know if you read his book, The Road to Serfdom, mm -hmm. which is really contrasting centrally planned economies. Whether they're fascist or socialist, it's all the same. It's really an authoritarian leaning yep. versus uh, liberal economies, which are basically about freedom. Mm -hmm. That you let the individuals decide within the context of certain rules, mm -hmm. and that's going to generate the greatest innovation and wealth for our society. Yeah. Steps that we take that centrally control things under government power move more and more towards what was kind of quote-unquote socialist and mm -hmm. steps that we take towards empowering individuals to be responsible and make decisions and educate them so that they can make those decisions are more towards a liberal government in a sense of freedom. Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes it's a disservice to call it the left versus the right because a lot of times they'll put socialist on the left and fascist on the right when I think they're the same group of family. There's still a centralized group planning, dictator, authoritarian. And that's figure. exactly what F.A. Hayek was saying in exactly. his book, was that you guys are miscategorizing them. They actually belong, they're the same breed. Yeah, They exactly. might have different practices, but at the end of the day, they're using government the coercion to run the economy of the, of the country. Right. And that's why I think America was such a revolutionary idea and why we were able to bring so much value, not just to our own country, but to around the world. Like you think of how much money we give and help and aid to other countries through private ventures and even government. It's because we came out of that battle between social and fascism and dictatorship, monarchy, mm -hmm. those central planned things. And we said, you as an individual have worth from God. Go out and make something of yourself. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing that sometimes gets lost in the political discourse, for Christians at least, is that it's easy for people to just assume that Christian means right or left or whatever, but it's not always clear to people why is it that if you believe what the Bible says and you believe what God's kingdom is like and what the Holy Spirit does, that you would lean towards one or the other? There is a love for people who are in poverty, and there's also a love for freedom and a love to empower people because that's what the Holy Spirit did is that the Holy Spirit poured out on all people, and they were all gifted, and they were all meant to be using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I feel like it needs to be clarified so people realize, like, no, we're not just debating politics or economic systems. It really helps you when you see, like, you see the movement of God how he's like wanting to fill his image bearers and wants them to mm -hmm. glorify him in all the world and give them freedom to make those choices, not to be constrained by these rules and these laws to, to dictate exactly how they have to be. That was a guardian, but to unleash them yeah. in the world. And so then the economic systems that give people more freedom, we would want to lean into that. Like that's what we see that God desires. And also the kind of ways that we can help also assist those who are in poverty, we would lean into that. So it's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be innovative. Like when Christians find their voice mm -hmm. and speak to this, mm -hmm. it's not going to sound just like the right and the left. It's going to be like, oh, this is weird. This is different. Like, huh. Yeah, I find it funny. Uh, people sometimes will blur political systems or economic systems. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But when people try to say like, oh, Jesus was a Democrat or Jesus was a Republican, I'm like, no, guys, Jesus is king. Like, he's yeah, a monarch, he's actually. Lord. Yeah, actually yeah, he is. Right? And But as far as um, economic system, I think... Clearly, Jesus was a capitalist in the sense that we defined it as that we are going to be held accountable for what he's given us. Yeah. And we have been given a talent or 10 talents or however many talents. And he's going to hold us accountable with what 
he gave us with. And that's private property, right? That is that, that whole princi- principle. Yeah. And again, we are to help the poor. We are to be light to them. We are to welcome them in. We're not supposed to favor the rich over the poor. And that is something completely different than government tax me 50% and then it goes through this bureaucratic channel and yeah. then they decide who gets it. It's like a whole different thing than what Jesus was talking about. He is personally holding us responsible to take care of the poor, not to give that responsibility to other people to decide. Well, I think that you're, I think you are right that we are going to be personally responsible. But we also see even in the distribution of funds in the early church <laughs> that they ended up appointing basically a board of deacons to oversee the church's assets and it's not saying that that's a prescriptive thing so you have to do it this way mm-hmm. but the disciples decided like well we're losing our time to do prayer in the word so let's find faithful people that the community trusts to oversee all the money that's, that's been donated to our community to make sure that the widows who really have no means of sustaining themselves mm-hmm. are provided for equally that we're not being you know racist or discriminatory against those who speak hebrew versus those who speak greek but we're treating them they're all members of the body so that's what they tried to do to solve that problem, and it became a, a, a board, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, right. a board. And it, it's not a prescriptive thing, but it's interesting to see how it played out. Because in the in the world of like volunteering and nonprofit boards, the thing I didn't like about it was that it feels like nobody's really accountable. Nobody has skin in the game. It's a little bit different when you're in a for-profit company because you're an owner, like your shares are in the game. Mm-hmm. So you take your board role in a way that's more serious because there's consequences if you don't exercise your board oversight. If you're not really involved in a lot of times, nonprofits can generate a lot of fundraising. But the incentives are not aligned because it doesn't actually result in the value that they were promising in the fundraising. It's just, you know, a compassion yeah. plea or uh-huh. it's just like a project plea. And and so it doesn't deliver results the way that if you were just a for-profit company, the results are going to be in your balance sheet and also mm-hmm. in your customer reviews. Like those two things together tell you, are your customers happy and are we making profit? I think the great thing about being a capitalist society is I don't need to have like an opinion one way or another. If that company is a non-for-profit company and they do a good job, they're going to do great. And if they aren't successful and if that business model doesn't work, then they're going to fail. And we can just see it play out. Like we don't have to have an opinion. We can wait and see but how it, they're going to I suppose do. so, but it does take time. Like there's a lot of even Christian nonprofits that use the Christian label, the brand, the name, mm-hmm. and then they misuse the funds. I know people personally who donated millions, whatever, uh-huh. to a project in India, for example, for church planting. And they get on the ground and they find out that all the money that was supposed to fund all those pastors, uh-huh. it was like maybe like 20% was actually going to the pastors. They were skimming oh, going. I see what you're saying. Of skimming going so you're out. not talking about the actual filing of the company or the structure of the company and just the misuse of funds. There's the, the misuse of funds. And then on the fundraising side, there's other boards that are like, oh, you know, help all these pastors who are being martyred or persecuted around the world. And it turns out later, as you audited, that the money wasn't actually helping the pastors. There's a building a fancy new building, a $20 million building mm-hmm. in the middle of Oklahoma downtown or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, if a for-profit company did that, you end up with maybe Enron. That was just like <laughs> cheating people and eventually it just completely collapsed. Yeah. But a nonprofit can kind of keep going for a long time because the person who's putting money in is not, there's no outcome that's going to yeah. make me hold them accountable. Well, to. definitely they should like <laughs> go to prison or something. There should be like <laughs> some legal ramification for that. But also as an individual giving to them, you're responsible for who you give your money to. Mm-hmm. Forget about the financial aspect for a second, but just the theological alignment. I need to make sure that I'm giving to people that are Christian based or not against my Christian values. I'm responsible to God for that as well. So you have some due diligence to do also of what you're going to do with your money. You're responsible for your money. Mm-hmm. Even if you get tricked, you should be doing research and due diligence. Yeah. I don't think we give enough responsibility to individuals anymore. So that makes sense. So well, everything we talked about could be summarized like that. One is that as an investor, it's your responsibility to hold the company accountable. 
So if you're unhappy with Absolutely. what Amazon's doing in New York, that's your that's your voice, and you may not have the voting power because Jeff owns everything. But, <laughs> you know, but you can still voice the fact that I don't like the way that my company, because I own the shares, is treating people in New York City or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. And you can say that. That's your power, and you should voice that. Same, similarly with giving, the point is not just because they give a presentation at your church that you should give to them because, oh, I must trust them then because the church allowed them to speak. The point was that, oh, is this how God wants me to allocate my kingdom portfolio mm-hmm. into this kind of thing? And are they yeah. managers that I trust? Mm-hmm. Because like you said, we will be held accountable for that. We can't just say, oh, they came to my church, Lord, so I'm sorry I got swindled. Right. Right. We have a responsibility as well. All right. Well, this has been a long episode, but I'm really grateful <laughs> we had a great conversation. And uh, thanks for being on the Theotech podcast today, Matt. Great, and everybody, for having me. check out How to Build Your Tent if you want more of that biblically-based business advice. Yeah, you can find me on the social media sites, How to Build a Tent. You can email me at matthowtobuildatent.com. Love to hear from you guys.